Listener Production. This is Episode 5 of Up Close, Conversations with Modern Veterans. Returning from overseas deployment is a difficult transition. Decisions about family and careers must be made. Some will stay in to chase unfulfilled dreams. Some will opt to leave. I was quite bitter and I actually threw my discharge in about 2013 because I was angry. I didn't know what I was angry about. I was just angry. Threw it in and it wasn't until that point that um, I went to see a doctor for my final uh, medical before I left the Navy and she said, you're not well. And I got angry and went to her and um, she said, no, no, you're not well. That's when I started my um, journey down with psychologists, psychiatrists with my own issues I've got going on. And from there, I, I withdrew my discharge and suddenly it became about me. I, I actually started treating myself. I got myself better that I could go back, to, oh, I thought I was better, to go back on the ship again. That's when I went on Parramatta and Melbourne. When I finished with them, I ended up going to Canberra for my last two years as the um, Warrant Officer Divisional Systems. I felt I was, and I was getting tired of it all. And it was that point when I was in Canberra in um, 2016 that they they offered me almost like a, a, it wasn't a redundancy package, but it was a leaving package that I could, don't know, I was coming up to that stage, it was 35 years, but I knew I was coming up to the 36 year and by the time I finally left. So that's where I started to head down when the Navy sort of pushed me, but I knew I was actually on the edge of um, getting discharged medically because of my, my issues that were going on. As a result of, of other things I've done over Navy, but predominantly 2004, I got PTSD really, really bad, um, deep depression, deep anxiety, plus a number of physical things which are caused by others, but they're the main things. And that was my cause of my anger, and I found out that people were tiptoeing around me because I was so angry about things and I didn't know what I was for. But that's predominantly what it is because I was going through, I had nightmares, um, uh, uh, things that were happening. I just wasn't in a very good place whatsoever. I didn't know, I didn't know what I was angry about. That's what I, I would go off, the, go off the deep end about things that were of minuscule that in that I wouldn't have gone off before uh, because I was there was something in me I just didn't know what it was when I was on HMAS Melbourne in 2006 as the warrant officer I was reading out a uh, I think it was a promotion in the ops room to one of the sailors because I used to do that I loved doing that as um, as a ship's warrant officer and my CO was standing next to me and he said I started to get garbled and it was almost like I was talking backwards I in my mind I drifted off somewhere for about 20 seconds and that actually thought I'd had something like a temporal lobe, epilepsy, all those other things, as it had the same things. It wasn't until 2013 that they looked back and looked what happened there. They said that was my first PTSD episode coming out in a different way. And it wasn't until I really started going to see psychs and talking to people that, that I could put two and two together and start to work at instances where, where I, in bed, I fight in bed at night. I've thrown my wife out of bed because I've had dr- vivid dreams. I'm always um, on edge, a, a fight fight and response type type reaction at night. And there were things like that that were coming out that I, I had no control over whatsoever. Did you find yourself back on the deck on that night in 2004? Absolutely. Yes. And thinking about what, what, what comes to mind and it comes out in vivid, it's A, that um, the hand coming out with the wedding ring um, on it that made them in. But part of that was I was helping to hold the man together and I had blood on me and things like that, which I didn't know until I turned the uh, the the red lights off in the hangar till the following morning till I realised I had bits of this person on me and, 
and getting that. And things were coming out that I was holding in at that time because I said earlier I didn't talk. I don't – if I would have talked maybe to people, I might have been all right. But, but I think all the things that I was holding back were suddenly coming out and I had no control over it. You spoke to the chaplain at that time. What role do the chaplains play in that scenario? In, in a way, the, the chaplain and the well, – I didn't know this till I went back as the ship's warrant officer – the chaplain and the ship's warrant officer work close close in hand because it's um it's about people. The the chaplain's there for uh, they say spiritual guidance because but anyway any denomination go to them, but it's more about that people that 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 um that, that wellness. How important was that to you at that moment? I think it was important at the time. I didn't think didn't even think about it. I reflect back and I thought that was important. To talk to him and it was just the way I put it, it was almost like two mates talking to each other. Um, even though we're, we're different ranks, we do different things. It's same same religion that I was, but I'm not a overly. I'm I know overly. I'm not overly religious, but um, but it was almost like two people talk to each other, and that's paramount is that talking, and that's where I suffer from is the fact I'm good at listening to other people, and doing things for other, but I don't talk. They know. In fact, my wife knows when I'm something going on because I actually recede to into myself. I mean, I'm always around people, but it's more it's more grieving of being around like people and um, having having a sense of purpose because we, we get these people that come in for their 11 weeks or I was at Narimba two years, whatever it was, and, and we, we get them to, to where we want them to be. And um, now they suddenly have a sense of purpose, whether it be fly an aircraft, um, carry a gun, drive a tank, whatever, that's their sense of purpose. And we actually instill that into the that we as a country are proud for you to carry that gun because you're doing it on our behalf. We're paying as taxpayers. I still laugh about I still bring that up with my people who are still in about using taxpayer money. <laughs> but but you have a sense of purpose and when you leave, you don't have – because you're not around your mates anymore and you actually, in a way, feel like you're letting them down because cause you've left them. You've left them alone who are still in. And um, it's back to that mourning process, whether it be – performing and all those other things, over a long career, you start your, your forming when you're, I was at Narimba through to morning when I left in um, 2017. Lorraine Hatton had joined the ADF for money, but that notion was long gone after her deployment to Afghanistan. She was now a highly accomplished soldier with combat experience. Coming home, she wondered how anything could top this pinnacle she'd reached. I came home to no one. My husband was deployed. It was lonely. Um, I just had to deal, basically. So I did. What were you doing? I was the communications manager at 5 Aviation Regiment. We had... uh, like all our codes and crypto, and I had staff that worked with me and the aircraft communications for Blackhawks and Chinooks. You've come back from Afghanistan and you're, you're feeling a bit out of sorts. Did you seek any support? Did you, how did you, what did you think about where you're at at the time? I think because I didn't really know what was happening to me. It was sort of like a trial and error sort of thing. I wasn't processing what I was going through. I took myself to the doctors. He gave me some antidepressants. I stayed home for a week and cried. And once I got over that, it was sort of like all out of my system, like the coming down part. And then I just went back to work. 
looking back on that, was that enough, do you think? No. (laughs) No, definitely not enough. When I discharged from the Army on the 16th of August 2007, I sort of worked in different jobs every two years. And I think that was a part of my military life of having to move every two years. And I wasn't doing very well and I sort of self-identified I was going through another crisis and I needed help. So I took myself off to get some help. That transition from being part of a family not thinking as the individual so much, but as part of the organism, part of the, a, a component of this big machine, that's a difficult transition at the best of times, let alone coming back from a war zone like Afghanistan. And we've seen so many of our service people struggle with mental health. And we've seen a, 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 an absolute tragedy of self-harm amongst uh, veterans. Um, I guess you can identify with the pressures and the loneliness and the loss of connection, the grief for the unit, the grief for the camaraderie, These are all really material factors. Oh, absolutely. Because you grow up in the military. And I can only speak for myself because my family of defence army being 20 years, you have that bond, you have that connection. And for me, it was quite strong. But then when I was tired, and I was ready to leave, it's like you have a huge loss, a huge loss of that family that you were with for 20 years. The good, bad, the indifferent, you know, the stresses, everything like that, you all shared that. Have you ever felt that sense of connectedness since? No. No. And it's funny because uh, last year, when I was appointed as the Indigenous Elder for the Australian Army, I've come back and it's like Army has gone through another change and a change for the better because when I grew up in in the Army, a lot of my warrant officers were Vietnam veterans. Back then it was like, do as I say, not as I do, or, you know, just blind obedience, that sort of thing. And you just did everything um, that they wanted. Yeah, that recognition of ego in a soldier, it's not necessarily a healthy thing, is it? I mean, when, in terms of, like, as you say, we, we, we talked about before about you're all in green, you're all the same, um, and that's how you get through. Do you, think it's, do you think it's probably a little underestimated now? No, I think they still have that bond of green. They still have that bond of green. Um, but I think it's the... They're more... What's the word because I went through the changes for women because, you know, women never went to field force units. But once again, I, I went. I think because of all of those changes, it's made what the army is today. When you discharge, uh, you've got all these high level skills that I think people from the outside would say would be quite transferable to, to the private sector. Um, but I think there's a tendency to undervalue those types of skills, people coming out of the services. I see it the same thing with police police officers and so forth. And you talk about your sort of what you call a sort of patchy employment every two years changing. 
Um, do you think you had to go through a period of understanding how valuable that training was, both on a professional level but also on a personal level? Yes, definitely. Because being in the military, being in the army as a communications manager, you're responsible for so many people, you're responsible for equipment, you know. And then when you leave, I remember my first job when I left the army was an admin officer for the uh, criminal investigation branch at Surface Paradise. I thought that would be an easy transition. But all you do is sit in an office on a computer and shuffle paperwork. I mean, like, they had the same sort of camaraderie that we had in the military, but the job itself was, like, really boring. And then I got a job with uh, Gold Coast City Council. And of all things, I became a PA because then I had, I was in control of everything. And that was good, but they had this typing pool of women. And we used to have these meetings and some of these ladies complained about, oh, somebody's wearing too strong a perfume. Somebody didn't say hello. It's like, I had this meeting one day and I said, I've never worked for a more you know, ungracious, ungrateful pack of women before in my life. I said, you live in great houses, you drive around in beautiful cars, you know, you're not getting shot at, bombed, raped and things like this and you complain about the smallest things. Well, yeah, I had to go to HR over that. (laughs) (laughs) Bit of savage truth-telling. David Nicholson would have gone back to Afghanistan in a heartbeat, but he was carrying the physical impacts of his tour of duty. Surviving four IED incidents had taken its toll. David wanted to continue in the army, but the doctors did not agree. It was very tough. It was very quick. You know, I just wanted to keep deploying with the lads and doing all the fun stuff uh, overseas. And, you know, then they're just uh, three years of fighting to stay in. And then um, I basically got told to, uh, uh, you're leaving. So, yeah, it was uh, it was very hard, especially because of how quick it happened. At that time, my uh, marriage at the time was gone. I was dealing with now getting kicked out as well. Uh, I basically went into a went into a hole, and I just stayed there. There was a big, big problem with with uh, mental health. Um, obviously physical health as well, and I ended up getting into bodybuilding. So that took majority of my my time. It was lots of eating and lots of working out, and I was so tired I couldn't think. So that was probably one of the best things I did to um, to get me out of a funk. Uh, so after like after all that, I had uh, you know brain trauma injuries. Um, Back's definitely not what it used to be. <laughs> um, but I manage everything now. Obviously, I can't manage what's going on up top, but um, I manage my back very well now. Um, still sore, or, no, always sore, but I live with it that long now. If I probably had a good day, I'd be wondering what's wrong. So part of the job, <laughs> it's, um, you know, you don't, you don't want to get injured or anything. You know, I wanted to stay in, so... Uh, feelings is is what it is. Um, I'd rather it be me dealing with it than one of my mates. So, 
Yeah. Did you ever avail the services of the chaplain or anything, any other support services? Nah, I, I, I don't know any of the lads that um, that went there or it was just basically you lent on each other if, if you had any troubles. I didn't really think it took a toll. I, I think I was just used to it. Um, I enjoyed it. It was like, you know, it was a rush every time you went out. So I loved it um, and, geez, every... <sighs> 98% of the guys I know, they they frothed it. They absolutely loved it. So uh, I think it was, wasn't was until we got back and then you're like, geez, that was freaking shit. You know, you, you sort of realise how, you know, how dangerous the situation was. So Would you go back again? Yeah, 100%. They let us go back now, I'll tie them back up. I, I've seen where you say that you miss the military every day. Every Yeah, every day. Yeah, every day. The fun parts. <laughs> a lot of boring parts, but um, you know the the fun parts definitely outweighed weighed the crappy ones. So I think everyone misses it in some way. Yeah, I guess it's a, again it's a, it's that how do you replace that thrill, that excitement, um, that vigilance in in daily life when you come back? Me, um, I don't know. I'm, I know a lot of mates that have missed it a lot and. Now they're jumping out of freaking any plane they can get into. So, you know, people find it different. I'm more of the, I just want to relax and enjoy, enjoy life in the cruisy lane now. So I've kind of softened up now. I don't try and get into any situation where something, I'm not even going to jump out of a plane. <laughs> in the wake of losing Shorty, Kim Morgan Short had made a new life with another fast jet pilot, Stu Morgan. Stu was a different character to Shorty, but he also understood Kim's drivers and goals in her military career. She wanted to serve her country overseas. The path to that goal would not be simple. I turned 50 on October the 30th in 2014, and three weeks after that he was diagnosed with an horrendous cancer, and he ended up having nearly lost his leg. We thought we'd beaten this cancer. He ended up passing his Air Force fitness test. He was so committed. This guy who's lost half of his leg ends up passing the fitness test. He had uh, checks to see whether he could egress the new aircraft. They said, we'll allow you to keep training on the aircraft because the radiation and the, the massive surgery was finished. All of that came around. I He said to me, you missed out on going on your deployment where I'd been training to go on a military deployment to the Middle East back when he was first diagnosed in 2014. Um, he said, you go. And I said, oh, no, I was very worried about going. He said, for God's sake, just go. So I ended up going in 2016 for seven months to our biggest base, Al Minhad Air Base in the UAE, and had a very professionally rewarding time. Multiple things went on in that. It was an extremely uh, exciting posting. I came back and five days after I returned, he was told he was terminal and that he had less than a year to live. Five days after I returned from deployment when I was literally still on uh, leave from my deployment, uh, I went back to work at Amberley Air Force Base because I didn't know what else to do working as a doctor he went through 
chemotherapy and masses and masses of surgery. He had his lung out, he had his spleen out, it spread through his body. By that stage, they said he's only got three months to live. Uh, we ended up, and this, this is where I'm extremely grateful, the Air Force actually managed to procure uh, a very uh, new drug, an immunotherapy drug from America. And I, again, I felt very grateful because here they were actually helping us this time instead of not helping us. And uh, Stu's life was prolonged from the use of that drug and he ended up surviving three years, albeit it, it was a very difficult three years. I stopped work finally uh, at the end of uh 2017 because he needed so much care and we were trying to do his bucket list items and let me tell you I've flying in a helicopter at low level I've done it I don't like it but I did it uh, we did all sorts of things which terrified me a uh, deep sea fishing trip where I threw up for the four days uh, all of these bucket list things that are not my bucket list let me tell you I've done these things I did it for Stu and he finally passed away uh, in October 2019 um, with all five of the children around because my three children really thought of him as their dad and my stepkids were there and his sisters and I can't say it was peaceful, it was horrendous, but the funeral was magnificent. There's one thing the military do do is a magnificent funeral. That decision to go on deployment whilst you were sick you spent a lot of your life caring for other people, looking after their interests. How important was it that, that, that you had your own deployment? I think when you've been in the reserves as long as I was, always backfilling, always coming in and helping out for the people that were going forward. And I felt like it was my turn to actually uh, go out there, experience what everyone else experiences. And I that sensation of doing your bit, I felt like it was part of uh, what my call to serve is. I needed to go out and do that. I felt very grateful I got that chance to do it. There's definitely things that were scary, definitely things that were uh, traumatic. We actually had to deal with a fatal aircraft crash on my deployment, uh, which was quite traumatic for me given the circumstances. Uh, but you do pull on the the professional face and get on with it. And that's what I love about people who serve in the military. We just get on with it. And uh, I feel, I hope that I helped a lot of people who had injuries and issues on their deployment as well. And it creates a connectedness to those people as well. And I feel in some ways that I've got that life experience now. I've basically, um, you know, I'm not just a widow. I'm not just a reservist. I'm not just someone who's worked as a civilian on many military bases. I'm not a mother, just a mother of a serving soldier. I'm actually a veteran in my own right. And I think I've got this gamut of experiences, which so few people do. Uh, I like to think in some ways that I can use that still uh, to help out in the future. And I don't know if I want to, sometimes I feel like just walking away from it and other parts of me just say, right, I I have a lot of knowledge. I've been around in this world for over 30 years now, 35 years, and I, I still feel I've got quite a bit to give. 
In episode six of Up Close, after long and varied careers, it's time for these men and women to consider life beyond the uniform and to resolve the past. Up Close, Conversations with Modern Veterans is a listener production in association with the Australian War Memorial. Written and produced by Adam Shand. Executive producer is Todd Stevens. Audio production by Ed Gooden and Link Kelly. Listener.